God has blessed me with uh, some great blessings this weekend. My wife and I have enjoyed very much being with the Barkers last evening for a while and then with you all day today. David told me what a great day it would be getting to know you and he certainly uh, told us the truth, the half was not told. Y'all are very wonderful, welcoming people and the brethren can cook. Uh, the man you're looking at weighed 145 pounds the day I got married, same height as I am now. And then the brethren got a hold of me. <laughs> And actually, I've been working to reverse uh, enjoying these fellowship meals. And so uh, pray for me as I continue to go in the right direction by getting back to uh, closer to what I used to be. I'm never going to get to 145 again, I know that. But uh, I was uh, very much blessed today to be a part of this great fellowship meal. And most of all, to be a part of your spiritual fellowship in these songs and praise uh, and prayers and acts of worship we've enjoyed together as we've communed and uh, be able to study God's Word together. It's a tremendous blessing. Uh, several of you challenged me to keep you awake after lunch. I, I would ask you to pray for me to stay awake as I drive home to Memphis after, after this sermon. So... Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time, Lord willing, we'll bump into you at PTP or somewhere like that. Uh, we just love seeing the brethren, and if I don't remember where I met you, just jog my memory, and uh, I certainly appreciate getting to see you again. If only, if only I could get my family to, if only I could get the world to, to what? I'm going to give you three Areas, so I'd like to fill in the blank. If only we could get the world to see. If only I could get my family to see how the world began. Now, the Bible tells us how the world began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. I know that some folks don't accept the Bible, and so we might reason with them and say, well, you know, there's a statement in the Scriptures that we'd like to ask you about the logic behind it. Hebrews 3 and verse 4 says, for every house is builded by some man. Well, who would deny that? Some years ago, I went to the St. Louis Science Center up in St. Louis, Missouri. I was with an elder in the Lord's Church, and we were there during the day prior to a ball game that night, and we went to the St. Louis Science Center, and they had all these exhibits all over the Science Center, and sadly, a, a lot of their exhibits were uh, basically encouraging the idea that evolutionary processes were the explanation for how the world came to be. And I know that change takes place within a species, but they were advocating for the kind of evolution that basically doesn't need God, and certainly God didn't need evolution to create the world, as we'll see here in a moment. I want you to notice, if you will, that uh, at the St. Louis Science Center, there was one particular wall that really caught my attention. They had monitors much smaller than this monitor here, but there were like nine of them mounted side to side, covering up a whole wall. And basically, if you looked at the St. Louis Science Center monitors there, it would show you in the far left monitor, working towards the far right monitor, it would show you the clearing of the land the laying of the foundation, the building of the building in fast frame fashion. It was one of those deals where it was going very rapidly and you could stand there and literally 
watch in fast frame fashion it turn from a bunch of woods into the St. Louis Science Center ribbon cutting ceremony. And I thought to myself, I've never ever left graffiti anywhere, but if I were ever tempted to leave graffiti, I believe it would be right here. I would put up above that bank of monitors for every house is builded by some man. See the monitors? And then underneath the monitors, but he that built all things is God. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4. Now, some of the food we just enjoyed, I know, took you some time to prepare. You had to put some time out of your busy schedule into making and preparing the dishes that you brought. No one in their right mind would ever buy the idea that you woke up this morning and Kaboom, an explosion happened in the kitchen, and voila, you've got a potluck meal ready for the potluck meal. No one would believe that because we all understand that it takes time and design. I, my human body and yours is an amazing, intricate design. You think about the human DNA and just how complex human DNA is. There's no one that would ever believe such sophisticated DNA could come about as a result of accidental chance and happenstance if they'd really stop and think about it. The Bible teaches us very clearly that God, according to Psalm 33, 6, God spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. In fact, verse 6 says this, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, for he spoke, it was done. He commanded, it stood fast. If only, if only I could get the world to see how much power God possesses, I could get them to see that it's no small feat at all. In fact, it's not difficult at all for God to have created. Someone says, do you really believe that part in the Bible which says in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Do you really believe he did it in six days? Exodus 20 and verse 11. Let me tell you what I believe. I believe he didn't need that long. If he'd wanted to do it faster, he could have. Do you believe God could have made the world faster than six days if he'd wanted to? Yes or no? Have you ever asked yourself why he took six days to do it? Why take six days and rest on the seventh? Not because that's how long it takes a divine, omnipotent being to create a world. But listen, friends, he was creating something else that week, and that was time. For you and for me to be able, do you know you can ask the evolutionist where we get our week? Where do we get seven-day weeks? What scientific explanation is there as to why we ended up with a seven-day week? It has nothing to do with how long it takes the sun and the earth to rotate. No, it has nothing to do with any of those things. Do you know why we have a seven-day week? I can explain it to you without any trouble whatsoever. We have it that way because God created it for our benefit to have a time frame in which to live our lives. That makes sense. And someone says, but Brother Clark... Are you not aware of the age of the earth and the millions and billions of years that it shows with the dating methods? I'm aware of this. The circular reasoning that goes into this process is really something to behold. Ask the evolutionist, the paleontologist, 
hey, how do you know that fossil that you found is as old as you claim it is? You say the earth is this old because of the fossils that you found in the earth. How do you know the fossils are that age? Not, not making this up. Well, we know the fossils age by the sediment where we found the fossil. Okay, how do you know the age of the sediment where you found the fossil? Well, by the fossil we find in it. Okay, how do you know the age of the fossil? By the sediment where we found it. And how do you know the age of the sediment? By the fossil that we found in it. That's called circular reasoning. And friends, I'm telling you, someone says, wait, do you not believe the earth is as old as they claim it is? Well, here's the problem. I know for a fact, and I can prove this to you, that there are some places, well, take Mount St. Helens as just one example. Mount St. Helens and all that came about after Mount St. Helens in the 1980s formed so quickly, and we know how quickly that formed, and yet when they took their dating methods in there and went in and dated it, it suggested that uh, the processes that were represented there took hundreds of thousands of years when in fact we know they happened within our lifetime and much less time. Uh, did you know they found a Civil War army button in a sediment, in a strata, where allegedly only things that are millions of years old would be found in here and they found a Civil War army button in those same areas? And a modern-day fishing rod and reel found in a sediment where allegedly things are millions of years old. Uh, here's the bottom line, though. I want to ask you, if I take God's word at face value, Genesis 1 and 2, then God created man on what day? Sixth day. Did God create Adam as a helpless little baby that needed a mama to nurse him and to raise him up until he could get old enough to walk and teach him to walk and then he could get old enough to become an adolescent and then he could become a young adult and then an adult. Is that the way the Bible presents Adam to us? God created Adam on day six, full grown and mature enough to handle and dress a garden and keep it. So just so happens we have a grandson named Adam and he was born on November the 21st of 2017. Now, if I showed you a picture of our Adam five days after he entered into this world by birth, if I showed you a picture of our Adam at five days old, and I could show you a picture of the Adam that God created five days after God made him, would there be any difference? You know as well as I do, they would both be the same age, five days old, five days old, and yet the Adam God made would appear to be hundreds of times, thousands of times older than the five-day Adam that our Adam represents. He would only appear to be older because God built the appearance of age into him at the moment he made him. If God did that with man, it's no feat for him to do that with the universe so that it could be mature and full-grown and operational from the moment he made it. I'm telling you, any age you want to throw out for the age of the earth, I'm just going to say back in response to that, well, that may be how old it appears to be, but actually 
It's a lot younger than it looks, just as Adam appeared to be much older than he actually was. Friends, that's just simple. I wish we could get the world, if only we could get the world to see that God made the world and spoke it into existence by his divine power. That's what he said he did. Who am I to come along and say, no, God, I don't think you... Someone says, you know, the days in Genesis 1, really, each one of those days represents millions and millions and millions of years. Well, if that's true, would you just look at one verse in Genesis 1 with me and let me ask you a question? If it's true that the days of Genesis 1 really represent millions and millions and millions of years each, then please tell me this. What do you do with verse 14? Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days. Now remember days in Genesis 1 means millions and millions and millions of years. And years, Genesis 1.14. If days in Genesis 1 equal millions of years, pray tell, what would years equal? Now, I'm going, to show to you, I'm going to show you beyond any doubt that God meant for us to take the six days terminology just as he shows it in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, God did this, and do you, let me ask you, let me just ask you, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I really want you to, do you believe in a God powerful enough? Is the God you believe in powerful enough to do it in six days if he wanted to, yes or no? I want you to notice Exodus 20 and verse 9. This is written, Six days shall you labor and do all thy work. Stop. Would anyone hearing that in the time of Moses hear, Six days shall you labor and do all thy work? I know what he means by six days. He means days that are representative of millions and millions and millions of years each. How would they have understood the six days terminology in Exodus 20 and verse 9? They would have understood it to equal ordinary days, evening and morning, 24-hour days. Well, drop down to verse 11. We've already seen what six days in the context means, ordinary 24-hour days. And what do we find in verse 11? For in six days, well, what days are we talking about here? Ordinary 24-hour days. In six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. You see, that's what the Bible says. Someone says, Brother Clark, if I go around telling people I believe God created the world in six actual, literal 24-hour days, I'm going to look foolish because the scientific community thinks that's foolish. Okay, so let's say you... Uh, adopt their theory instead. What's their, well, look, for example, where did the uh, cow, uh, where, where do the whales come from? Well, this is an explanation I'm about to give you that uh, I promise you is the actuality. They wouldn't word it in the way I'm about to word it, but this is what they believe. There was a cow that had evolved into existence. One day the cow looks out from land into the water Cow starts thinking, hmm, I wonder if I could live out there instead of right here. So the cow wanders out into the water. She wades and she wades, but she can't live in water and she drowns. She's not survive enough 
not fit enough to survive, rather. But there's another cow that goes out and lasts longer than, it's more fit to survive the water than the previous cow, but she drowns. This continues until finally there is a cow that is fit enough to survive and tread water long enough to develop breathing apparatuses so that the cow can continue to live in the water and get bigger and bigger and bigger and become a whale. Now that's intellectual right there, right? Friends, I'm telling you, Christians have nothing to apologize for when it comes to what we believe about how this world came to be because God, with his ultimate power and design, made it the way that it is, and each, we believe evolution takes place within a species. That's why you see all different kinds of dogs, but they're all still what? They're dogs. They don't turn into something else. They're still dogs. So change within a species, yeah, we all see that, but that's not what evolution is arguing for as taught by those in the secular world. They're suggesting that evolution means changing from this into this. If that's true, the fossil record should be littered with all kinds of this on its way to becoming this, 75% of the way to becoming this. Where is the fossil record that is containing all the fossils that are 35% this and on their way to becoming something else? Friends, it's not there. And even the so-called missing link fossils do you know the so-called missing link fossils, the ones they claim are ape-like men, you could fit them on a pool table, a billiards table. And a lot of those, frankly, have backstories behind them that show you, I mean, think about it. You're a paleontologist. Your whole life depends on finding something of value, finding something of value. And so, frankly, a lot of the times what they find is conveniently assumed to be this. If you don't believe there's some, some assumption going on, then you don't understand how they're drawing these models for these books, these textbooks. Someone said it would much be like finding a fragment of a hubcap in a junkyard, and from just finding one fragment of a hubcap, drawing out the entire car, the color, the interior color, and whether it not had an eight-track player in it or a CD player in it, all from one fragment of a hubcap that I found in a junkyard. I can come to all those. They find a fragment of a bone, and the next thing you know, they've drawn an entire picture of what that would have looked like, and they don't tell you. They don't bother to tell you. Oh, yeah, we did use a, a quite a bit of assumption in drawing those pictures. Be that as it may, friends, if... Only I could get the world to see how God made the world. That's number one. But second, if only I could get the world to see why the world began. Why are we even here? I mean, let's say that you go out and make a lot of money and you make a lot of money every year until the year you die and you make a lot of money that year too and then you die and what? That's it? That's why you can, Solomon, did you, uh, did you figure out why you were here? I sure wasn't, I was sure looking for it. 
In the book of Ecclesiastes, you remember Solomon gives us his inspired diary, so, so to speak. He says, let me tell you what I was hunting for. I was looking for this in all the wrong places, apparently. I tried wine, wisdom, wealth, women. Summarizing chapter 2, he said, I tried all these things. I became a, a workaholic in verse number 4, made great works and builded me houses and planted vineyards. And I had so much. Verse 9, I was great. I increased more all the, that were before me in Jerusalem. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. Wow, I've never been able to have so much money that I could say anything I want, the moment I see it, I'm buying it just now. I don't have to save up. I can buy. Young people would think it was fabulous if you could ever get to the point where you could buy any toy that you, they wanted the moment they wanted it. They would think that was, in fact, I asked one time in a sermon, I said, if you could get to the point where you had so much money, you could buy anything you wanted the moment you wanted it, would you be truly happy? And I wasn't expecting an answer necessarily, but to show you again how young people listen, they said, uh-huh. They were sitting in the audience saying, oh, this would be great. I would never be told by mom and dad, we can't afford that. And my mom used to watch these shopping network channels when she was alive. And I'd, one night I came in and she said, where's Judy? I said, who is Judy? She said, the QVC lady. She's, she must be on vacation. I said, mom, you know these people by name? <laughs> well, yeah. I, but she just grazed. She hardly ever purchased. Why? She saw things she wanted. I can't afford that. I'd like to have it, but I can't afford But what if you could? What if you had so much money you could buy it the moment you wanted it? You'd finally know happiness, right? Well, wait, Solomon, you've been there and done that. Did you have any money? You better believe I did. I was the richest man on earth at the time I was alive. And Solomon, how'd that work for you? Verse 17, Ecclesiastes 2. Therefore, I hated life. You ever seen a true Hollywood story documentary? This person went from rags to riches and then they got on drugs. Then they did this. Then they did that. They're looking still for something they haven't found. They've got money. Listen, I used to, I used to preach five miles from where Elvis Presley's Graceland Mansion was located. And one Sunday morning, this couple came to visit us that I'd never seen before. So I went to their house on Tuesday night to thank them for coming and ask them to come back. And when I got to their house, they were so enthusiastic to have me in. And the lady said, that was amazing, Sunday. The sermon you preached, you, I told a story about Elvis Presley during that sermon in which Elvis Presley had said to a magazine reporter, Sometimes I think I'm the most miserable man on earth. The magazine reporter was like, come on, Elvis, you're miserable with your limo waiting outside to whisk you away to your private jet so you could fly to any exotic destination you want to go. And you've got beautiful women that think you're handsome that would love to be your girlfriend. And a 20-plus room mansion in which we're having this interview, yeah, a lot of people would like to be that miserable, Elvis. The, the reporter's trying to get Elvis to backtrack and tell you, but you, surely you don't mean that you're miserable. 
the most miserable man on earth? Really? Well, I told that story because I'd read it in a magazine, read about it in a magazine, and the lady says, we hadn't been to church in 17 years, and the first Sunday we come back to church, you preached on Elvis. Wasn't that amazing? Well, it was amazing to me because I didn't think I'd preached on Elvis. I told this during an exposition of 1 Timothy 6, 7, which we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. I'm not here to get more and more stuff so that I can die and leave it all behind. That's not why I'm here. That's not why the world began. But I said, uh, why does that uh, surprise you so much? She said, well, Gene here is Elvis's first cousin. He, uh, his mother and Elvis's mother were sisters. And I married Gene, and then we moved in uh, to the live at Graceland for a while. I'd never met these people, and please forgive me for this, but in my mind, I mean, it's not every day you meet someone that says, yeah, I used to live at the mansion with Elvis. And so in my mind, I thought, bless their hearts, these people are not connected to reality. How quickly can I get out of here? They think they lived at Elvis's house. Then she pulls out the photo albums. Here we are in the set of this movie with Elvis, and this is before the days of Photoshop, and I'm like, they're telling the truth. That's, that's Elvis. That's them with him. And here we are at the holiday party. And I told you all that to tell you this. Gene looked at me and he said, you know that interview you mentioned Sunday morning? I said, yes, sir. He said, I was in the room when it was conducted. Elvis would allow us to sit there and listen if we didn't interfere. He said, when Elvis told that man that he sometimes thought he was the most miserable man on earth, he said, you have no idea how hard that reporter tried to get him to take it back. He came to write a puff piece about how great it would be to be Elvis Presley. And let me ask you, if you're Steve Jobs and you made billions with the Apple Corporation, when you die, how much does that mean to you then? If you're Bill Gates, uh, you name any rich man you want to name. If you could invent a cure for cancer today, that would be wonderful. I promise you, you'd become rich and a lot of people would be very, very happy. But on the day of judgment, that wouldn't get you anywhere. And it wouldn't answer the question, why am I here? Listen, here's the bottom line. Would you go to Ecclesiastes 12? Solomon, did you ever figure it out? Did you ever figure out why you were here? Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Verse 13. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. The word duty is italicized. It's supplied by the translator for clarity, but really, in this case, you could leave it out and still get the point. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. That's what man is all about. It's not about getting more and more stuff to leave to people that may squander it foolishly, as Solomon knew some would do, and that bothered him to think, here, I've gotten all this, and I'm going to leave it to a fool. Friends, why are you here? Let me show you Ephesians 1.10. This is the bottom line right here. This is why this world began, and it's spelled out for us in this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. God, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, was 
intending to do what? To gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven, which are on earth, even in him. The whole point of this world existing is so Jesus could leave heaven, come to this earth, give himself as a perfect sacrifice so that we could be gathered together in one body of the church, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 to 16, and we could be in that church which is part of his eternal purpose, chapter 3 and verse 11 of the book of Ephesians. What a wonderful thing that is. And I tell you, if you die and you're a member of the church and you're the poorest man in your community, let me ask you, if you die as a faithful Christian, as the poorest man in your community, have you died a failure or a success if you're in Christ? You see, death is the great equalizer. And so why am I here? If only I could get the world to see the reason we're here is to fear God and keep his commandments, to whatever we do, do it to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, to, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven, Matthew 5, 16. Now finally, here's the third and, and final thing. If only... If only I could get people to see how the world began, I could get them to see why the world began, and now I could then get them to see how the world will end. And if you walked into the bookstore at Barnes & Noble or any bookstore, if you got online on Amazon's books, Kindle books, whatever, then and you started saying, I want to find one book that will tell me exactly how the world began, exactly why it began, and exactly how it's going to end, but I want only one book that covers it. Go in and ask the book clerk to take you to the one book that would say how the world began, why it began, and how it's going to end. I can promise you, unless they have some connection to religious knowledge, they may say, well, I don't think there is such a book that covers. I mean, we got a lot of books on origins, but they don't really cover why we're here. And we got a lot of books on origins, but they don't cover how the world's going to end. You're wanting one book that covers all three? Yes. Friends, here it is right here. B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I didn't come up with this, but oh, how appropriate it is. B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That is what this book is designed to be, Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. I have all that I need in this book right here to tell me how the world began. I have all that I need in this book right here to tell me why the world began so that I could become a member of the church. And we talked about how to do that in Acts chapter 2. Those people heard the gospel preached. They were, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. They did it. They were added to the Lord's church and thus gathered together in the, the body. Now what? Now I want to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing my labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul, is it worth it to be a Christian? Yes. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. How's that working out for you, Paul? Henceforth, the Lord has laid up for me. Yes, the righteous judge will give me a crown at his appearing. Someday, and I don't know when, and neither do you. I don't know when, but he's coming back. Now, those of you who hear these preachers say they know when, 
Let me tell you about a preacher, a preacher friend of mine heard and told me about. He said he was driving down the road listening to AM radio station. And the AM radio preacher said, ladies and gentlemen, I've done the mathematical calculations. I've looked through the whole Bible and I know now that it's going to world's going to end in three, three weeks and the world will end. It'll all be over in three weeks. He went on like this for 28 minutes. And at the end of his program, his announcer came on and said, if you really truly enjoyed this sermon from this preacher and you'd like a copy of it, write to us at this address and please allow four to six weeks for delivery. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I thought we were all going to be gone in three weeks. Jesus told in Matthew 25 the parable of the virgins, five wise, five foolish, all waiting for the same event, by the way. But five were prepared and five thought they were but weren't. Hadn't taken enough time to make proper preparation. And so the bridegroom came and only five were ready when he did. So let me ask you, what is the takeaway from that? Jesus says, watch therefore for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. You don't know when he's coming. I know that the time is coming when the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. And I know then the dead in Christ are going to start rising first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I know that. The only reason I know that is because he told me that in this book right here, the B-I-B-L-E. He told me all about it in here. He told me that this world is going to end. And how is it going to end? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, some scoffed and said, coming back? Yeah, well, it's been a long time and he hadn't come back. Where's the promise of his coming? He says, uh, the Lord hasn't come back yet because he's long-suffering. But the day of the Lord will come, verse 10, and it will come as a thief in the night, in the which the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. But not my iPhone, right? Yeah, even your iPhone. But not my DVD collection and my Xbox. Yeah. Not my antiques, your car, your, your wardrobe. Yeah, all of it, your, your dream house. Ashes, gone. So if the world is going to be burned up, as 2 Peter 3 teaches clearly that it is, here's the takeaway from that scene then, that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conversation and godliness? If only, if only I could get men to see that is the question we've got to answer. If all of this is going to be gone someday, what kind of focus should I have? Set my affection on things above because that's where treasures in heaven will never be destroyed. Matthew 6, 19 to 21. And Colossians 3 says, you set your affection on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where my focus is because that's where I'm going to live someday. I'll close with something you've heard preachers, I'm sure, before this preacher tell. It's almost the time of high school graduation, college graduation. We're approaching the time when some of you 
maybe even here today are going to graduate from high school, graduate from college, start a brand new life. I just want to ask you to think about this story we preachers sometimes tell and think about why we tell it. I tell you why I tell it. I tell it because of all the things that I tell people that causes them to think about, hey, yeah, that, why am I here? This book tells me exactly why I'm here. It tells me where I'm going, either heaven or hell. These shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal, Matthew 25, 46. I want to be in that group that hears, well done, enter the, instead of the group, depart, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So this father says to his son on the night of his son's high school graduation, son, come in the living room, we want to talk to you. Look at you. Your cap and gown. You look so grown up. Yesterday you were, seems like yesterday, you were playing in the sandbox, driving your big wheel up and down the driveway, and here you look at you. Where did the time go? So after you graduate tonight, what's next? What do you mean, what's next? I mean, on life's agenda, what's the next thing for you after you graduate? We've talked about this, I know, but humorous. Let's talk it through one more time. What's next? I, I'm going to college, you know that. Okay, good, good. And then what? what? What happens after college? Well, maybe while I'm in college, I'll not only get an education, but I'll find that sweet someone that I will marry, and I'll start my marriage and my family and my career all about the same time. We hope that works out well for you, son. But what happens after that? I raise the family. I work hard, advance, try to advance in the corporation, you know, or my job to get promoted, to provide even more for my family. I guess that's what. Let's say you live long enough to do all that. Then what's next on life's agenda? Come, what, what then? By the time... Uh, I've done that. I guess my children will be getting ready to graduate, and they'll graduate from high school. I hope that your mom and I are still alive to see your children graduate from high school. That would be sweet. Let's say that we are and that you live long enough to see your children graduate from high school. Then what? They'll go off and start their families and their careers, and I guess I'll be winding mine down. Yeah. And then what, son? Oh, I mean, I, the time's going to come when I'll retire, I guess. I don't know if your mom and I will be around to see your retirement years or not, son. I don't know, but I, let's imagine that you live long enough to work all your life until you retire. Then what? Well, I'll enjoy retirement. I'll... I'll get up when I want to and go to bed when I want to and travel here when I want to and you know all those good things that come with retirement. If that's really what happens. Okay, son, let's say you get to do everything you just mentioned. You live out your retirement. What then? After retirement? Yeah, what comes after retirement? 
I mean, obviously, come a time when I'll, I'll die. Tears in his eyes, his father says, yes, son, you will. You will die. We all will die. Then what? What comes after that? And we better have that figured out. Christian knows what comes after that. It's the opportunity to live with God and be with Jesus forever and never have to say goodbye and to be with loved ones, as was mentioned earlier today, in friends and family forever. You know what, how wonderful that will be. Friends, though, I say this as we get ready to extend heaven's invitation. It's so important to keep, keep on track as to what we're here for. While we are on this planet, it is to get ready to leave this planet and go to the next one. It's not... And I don't mean a planet like the ones that you're in, the next life, the, the life beyond with God. That's where I want to go. It's where I'm going. I'm going to end up either hearing the words well done or depart. I know how to hear the words well done. He's told me in this book, by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, I can enter his church, the one that his son purchased with his own blood, and then I can live for Christ so that someday I can live with Christ, which is far better, Paul said in Philippians 1, 21 and following. In the meantime, I'm going to do everything I can to bring as many people with me as possible because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Yeah, That's why I can't feel at home in this world anymore. I'm looking forward already to the next one. If you're here today and you're not sure that you're ready for that, then I beg of you to consider your eternal salvation and to do what they did in the first century to become his followers as we've mapped out today in the messages. And if you're already a child of God but wayward and wandering, don't walk out of this building uncertain of where you're going because as you and I know, the what then for us can come much faster than we ever dreamed. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Don't kick me out of the building because I tell you that. But yesterday I was startled to see come across my phone that one of our quarterbacks, college football star at Ohio State, Dwayne Haskins, dead at the age of 24, hit by a dump truck as he was walking or trying to traverse lanes of traffic. I'm not sure exactly got the whole story, but I'm telling you this. They showed a picture of him the day before, smiling ear to ear at practice, wearing his practice jersey, and he was all grins. The next day, he's in eternity. You don't know. And so I beg of you, make sure you're ready so when the then what comes for you, you're ready. As together we stand and sing.